Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey everybody and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host Max Cantor and today on the show I have a comedian who is currently based in Los Angeles, California. He's a stand-up comedian and is also the founder of Chatterbox Comedy Night Podcast which produces the shows uh, like Who's Your God and Views from the Vista. So please welcome to the show Steve Hernandez. Welcome to the show Steve. Hey, Max. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. And so just to jump right into it, uh, growing up, what uh, either late night television or really any type of TV, movie, anything influenced you and your comedy? Um, you know, I, uh, I I would say that uh, there, I, wasn't, I wasn't influenced too much by anything uh, on TV or anything, but I did grow up in church and I used to be a pastor. Mm. So uh, I yeah, I think uh, I got a lot of that stuff um, from the church, especially public speaking. Mm-hmm. So you did you become interested in performing and being up in front of people before you became interested in making people laugh? Yeah, you know, in high school I did uh, drama and everything. I, I did always like performing, but I started pretty young doing all that ministry stuff. Even I grew up in the church that eventually became a mega church. So there was always um, like big activities that we would do, and I, I was just always in front of people a lot of the times. Mm, I see. So when did you become? I know you said you you grew you grew up in the church, but when did you make that decision that you wanted to become a pastor? Uh, I don't know. I got conned into it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we started um, around the time I graduated high school. They started a, a program. It was it was like a, we had a big church. Right now, the church I, I don't belong to it anymore. I think it might be up to fifteen or twenty thousand. When I left, they were at ten or twelve thousand. So um, our student ministries, like all the youth group stuff, they started a uh, like an internship program, and I was asked to be one of the first interns. And then we did uh, all the stuff you've seen on movies about evangelicals tricking people into falling in love with the Lord. We did all of that kind of stuff. So from like big events with like uh, sumo suits and video games to we even like, I helped design uh, a hell house, uh, like a Christian haunted house. A Christian haunted house. Okay, you got to tell me what it. What Max, it, you've heard about this, right? I mean, I've heard a little bit, but I'm hearing it straight <laughs> from you. You have all the details. You have all the juice behind it. So, I, what is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. What is a Christian haunted house? All right. So this one was called Inferno. The tagline was "It'll scare the hell out of you." <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> we dropped like a hundred thousand dollars on this thing every year. Oh my god. So, uh, yeah, uh, people would just walk in, and there'd be tunnels, but there'd be all these different rooms of like people sinning. There'd be like each room would be a different kind of a sin. Like one would be like gang violence, and uh, another would be like a woman have a girl having an abortion, or uh, someone ODing on drugs. They would all be like different scary rooms with like a voiceover where like kids need to learn their lesson, and at the end they're like they're, they end up in hell. But last minute, like someone like springs them out of it, and then like tries to con them into accepting Jesus into their heart. Wow! So did this actually work? Did did this convert a lot of people? I, it depends what you what you mean when you say did it work. I mean, we would get a lot of people that would come through, and you know, I, I think a lot of teenagers, uh, especially from where I'm from, especially like in the suburbs, I found that 
lot of people go through like Christian stages when they're in high school, kind of just to fit in. So who knows how many hundreds of people like gave their life to, to the Lord, quote unquote, and then it was just the thing for the night to do. So. Wow. You know, it's funny to hear you talk about this because I'm Jewish. And so I just started picturing what a Jewish haunted house would be. And I just imagine it, it would be it would be something like you show up at like a party and then they're out of food and then everyone's panicked and, and doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so a bunch of neur- neurotic scenarios. Right. <laughs> just everyone freaking out. <laughs> you know, oh, no. You know, you we to, you have to meet your girlfriend's parents. <laughs> right. <kind of> <laughs> right. You sit down at the table and the parent you have to tell them that you're Jewish at the at the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> that's I. That's how I feel. <laughs> that would be the Jewish haunted house. But wow, yeah, that'll scare the hell out of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but wow, that that's such a unique experience. So I know, like, uh, you know, in like a, a regular haunted house, people will like get dressed up and you know hide and jump out and scare people. What was your role in the Christian haunted house? What did you do? Oh no, I was just I helped design the thing, and so mm. we, we worked a lot with like adult volunteers. And if you think of all the like, you know, there's probably maybe every night maybe like thirty or forty or fifty volunteers that would help run this huge thing. So I would kind of just like direct everything, but I helped design the thing. Mm. But uh, yeah, just you know, all the different actors, the angels, the demons, the poor abortion girl, you know, make sure she's comfortable in between the things. So uh, wow. yeah, I mean that's and then we'd, we'd help, yeah, make sure that. There are people there to pray with everyone and stuff. But, I mean, all that to say, it's very, very dramatic things we would always do. And then, of course, I would preach, like, every Sunday, where I'd have to come up with different, like, series. But, I, you know, I would preach for 45 minutes, four, four times a, a month, every Sunday, and I would have to design those teachings. And pretty much the same place I get my jokes from now is it, the same place I, I, like, get, I got those sermons from. Mm, so are you talking about like your personal life, your personal experiences? Yeah, I would, I, you know, it would, depending on how it would, it, it's almost the same way. I, I, you know, a lot of times I write jokes now. I can't speak for everyone, but you, I really kind of write in, in an essay format in a lot of ways where you kind of come up with a thesis sentence and then you come up with um, jokes to back up that thesis sentence, usually three. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, back then I'd come up with, okay, this is, this is what my thesis would be. And then I need, um, I would probably come up with three different personal stories or examples from movies. And then I would back those three things up with Bible verses or, or I take a, a big, sh- a big story and then go the backwards route from that. So I take the story and then come up, pull out three points from the story and back those up with personal stories. Mm-hmm. And stuff from movies or TV or anything like that. Was there ever an overlap of your preaching career and your comedy career? No, absolutely not. But I was a funny, I was a funny <laughs> pastor. So I mean, when I started doing that, I was like, it, there was like uh, maybe maybe there was about ten years in between the two. And so when I figured out, like, when I figured out what it, what it, how mine was going to be, it was pretty much oh, it's what I used to do, except I don't have to talk about God at all. Mm. I don't have to like kind of shoehorn the Bible into to this like positive teaching or anything. Mm-hmm, right. So you said the the your writing styles for both uh, performing styles are are very similar, if not the same. Uh, do you find audience reaction is same, or what's the biggest difference that you've noticed between performing a sermon and performing stand up comedy? Oh, stand up is uh, you know way harder than. They let you get away with so much on a Sunday for 45 minutes. 
Like, you know, there'd be sometimes where I was really winging it, man. <laughs> but you cannot, I mean, you can't even wing it at an open mic. You'll get torn to shreds. But yeah, every line and stand up needs to be there for a reason. And uh, for, you know, for preaching, it just absolutely does not have to be that way. Mm. But yeah, stand up is way. And of course, then you get more laughs and everything. And I was talking to high school kids and college kids mostly. So they did not want to be there. If I were to get, if I was getting any reaction from them, that was a real proving ground. So I, that was, that's way, in that respect, the audience is way harder to do on a Sunday morning to a, a junior in high school is near impossible compared to someone who's drinking in a bar. So there, there's some things that are easier about stand up and uh, some things that are harder. Mm, I see. I got you. So when you left the church, you said there were a, there was a ten year break between you discovering stand up comedy and the comedy world. So in those ten years, what were you looking to do? Absolutely nothing, Max. I was just partying hard. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know if you've heard about me, but I was probably one of the best waiters uh, the TGI Fridays in West Covina had ever seen. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, really hard partying. For about all those 10 years, and then I, I, in the last couple of years, two of that 10, I worked at the Chatterbox where we have the show. It's one of the best shows in the country um, now, but um, it's a bar in Covina. But yeah, those 10 years, I was just um, having a good time and partying hard. And I, when I quit the church, I quit because I, I felt like it's what God would have wanted me to do. Uh, I, I was having sex with my girlfriend at the time, and I was getting drunk sometimes and those things weren't okay to do if you're a pastor. And so I quit with the best intentions in mind, but my church asked me not to come back for the, for a year. And so, uh, after, during that year, I just said, ah, fuck it. And, and, uh, and I ended up just, uh, having a good time for those 10 years. Mm. And so what made you venture into comedy after, you know, the 10 year break? How, how did you discover that? Uh, my buddy Scott Lors, who helps run the Chatterbox with me, um, he was a, a friend. He was a friend and a roommate of, of a, a good buddy of mine, Travis Taylor, who's the head bartender at Chatterbox. Uh, this was maybe nine years ago. Um, so this guy Scott Lors that I kind of knew, and um, he uh, he started doing it. So he invited me to his first Bringer show. You know what a Bringer show is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to his first Bringer show. And uh, he invited all his friends, and we went, and I went with my, my ex at the time. And uh, he was just so funny. I really don't, I don't know how funny he was now in retrospect. <laughs> I mean, he might have been terrible, but we all thought he was so funny. And I remember seeing him, and I just thought to myself, yeah, you know, if I don't, if I don't start doing this soon. And I really didn't care to do it. I had no aspirations about that kind of thing. But when I watched Scott, I just said, oh, this guy's going to be funny. And if I don't like end up doing this at some point, like uh, he's just going to be famous and I'm going to say, Oh yeah, I knew that guy. And, um, I, I was going to school pretty hard at that point, And, uh, I, I was supposed to get this real, this class that was real. And as soon as I got this class, I could transfer to UCLA and something went wrong with the computer. Like I thought I was, it's, it's a dumb story, but I ended up missing on that the class. So I had my summer open. And uh, Scott said, oh, you should just go to some open mics with me. And I started to go to those open mics. And there goes my life. <laughs> Do you remember the very first time you performed stand-up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How did it go? Um, Was it a success? 
No, it wasn't an open mic. It, it was it, it was kind of at TGI Fridays, like maybe two years before I actually started. Uh, there was a bartender who got fired, and then uh, myself and my friend Steve Spade and Travis Taylor. These are all kind of people that the Chatterbox knows about. We uh, we just I don't know where we got the idea that we could do it, but we just kind of threw a stand up show in that guy's garage and invited everyone, charged them like twenty bucks. All the money was going to go to this guy Manny who got fired. And so uh, we just packed it out, had a big party, and the garage was full of chairs. And we each did, I think, maybe 20 minutes. And I, I mean, I remember some of the jokes. Still. I, I, I would never tell you them. <laughs> it, it was really, really, it was really bad. Like, I, now I, I can't believe how bad it was. But I did that. We did that maybe a few times for different things for a couple of years. And then before I went to, like, my first open mic. And then I actually started doing stand-up here in Los Angeles. Gotcha. So you kind of had like a, a very soft introduction to it. So by the time you were doing open mics, I, I would assume you felt very comfortable to get up there. I don't know how comfortable you ever feel right away, but I, I mean, I was also terrible, like bad for the first year. Like it's, like it's embarrassing. Um, and especially when you go, um, I'm, I'm from West Covina, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. So it's about 30 minutes outside. And the first open mic that we went to, Scott had been doing bringer shows, but he didn't understand that, that those are a horrible thing to get caught up in and that the, you don't have to bring people to, you just should go to open mics. And so uh, we went on the first day to this one. It was called Casey's downtown. It's a real, now it's kind of like, a, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was like a nice famous one at the tent. Dave Ross used to run it and uh, Alan Spicken Williams. A lot of people on the Los Angeles alternative comedy and kind of cut their teeth there. But I was from the fuck, I was from the suburbs. Like I wasn't savvy or didn't know anything. So even when I got up to whatever I said was like terrible. I mean, uh, it was just like, cause when you start comedy, especially in Los Angeles or New York, I don't think you don't understand that you're like going up against people who either have been doing stand up from for seven years somewhere else and then moved here. And they're very good. Or a lot of people graduated from Ivy League schools and they've, uh, they have a internship at Conan. So I'm just like some, you know, dumb, fat Mexican guy from West Covina <laughs> just saying whatever made my friends laugh at TGI Fridays in a garage. <laughs> uh, it's not going to be the same level of jokes. Uh, but I didn't know that then. So, but, so, but it took about a year to figure out. Uh, yeah, it was bad. And it's, it is not easy to start in Los Angeles. Mm. So do you see, now that you've been doing it for a couple of years, do you see that a lot of new comedians start in Los Angeles and then just immediately give up because they're outnumbered or out-experienced? Uh, I think that's that does happen a lot. And I mean, it, it kind of, it should happen. If I had my um, brothers, if, if I could choose to do it again, I mean, the ideal thing is to start in, the, in a, a B or C market you know, someplace, go, go to a place like San Francisco or Atlanta or Denver, even though Atlanta and Denver have arguably the, the hottest scenes in the country right now, but places where you don't have to worry about the industry and uh, there's a lot of real people there so you can figure out your voice, go there for five, six, seven years, and then you move to either New York or Los Angeles. Um, but, uh, you know, we I didn't really, I kind of wasn't in the position to do that. When I was old, when I was, uh, I was like 32 when I started. So, and I was married at the time and I, I had a pretty sweet gig. It's the same gig I have now at the Chatterbox where I only bartend on Thursday and Friday nights and I make enough money to cover all my stuff, just working the two nights a week. So that's kind of kept me 
not, I don't want to say trapped because I've chosen to be here, but I, I, I am aware that if I were to move to someplace like Denver or Portland or San Francisco, that I could get a lot more stage time and maybe develop my voice a lot quicker. Um, but I've chosen to stay here because my family's here and I have a great setup. And I know it's just going to end up taking me a, a few years longer uh, to quote unquote make it or actually make a real living doing this. Mm, I see. Now, when you first started doing stand-up, uh, what type of jokes were you writing? And when I say that, I mean, were you telling stories, like experiences, um, or were you doing more one-liners and short jokes like that? No, I, I always tell more stories. A lot of the stuff usually flows from me. Um, at the time, and I've gotten this, I, I'm calling myself a queer comedian more and more. I, I don't like, it, it feels weird for me to do that because I'm mostly always with women. I just get into kind of, weird stuff but even at the time I, I was married but we were in an open marriage and polyamorous and stuff like that and i was trying to make jokes about that stuff very early on and um it's very hard i'm a good comedian and i've been doing it for eight years now and it, that stuff is off is is very hard right now to do baron vaughn i don't know if he still identifies as polyamorous but uh, he's my friend and we've uh, hung out a bunch of times but we would talk about how hard uh, uh, Eli Olsberg, uh, how hard it is to talk about like kind of weird out of the box sex stuff because most people just don't relate. And um, so I was talking about, I was trying to talk about very high level stuff right away. And I just wasn't a good enough comedian to do it yet. Hmm. So uh, it just comes out weird and bad. And, um, and uh, it, it I, I, that's why, I mean, I, I was terrible for the first couple of years. And then, then I started to figure out that the, the things that the, the, the people liked about me, and you just kind of write more in that direction. And now I'm getting to the place where I real when you've done it long enough and you figured out how to write jokes and do things. And you know, I've only been doing it eight years, so I certainly haven't figured out the whole thing. But now I, I'm I'm actually trying to actively choose to talk about things that I want to talk about, not necessarily the things that make people laugh. Mm -hmm. You have the way you were describing it is very interesting because I've talked to a lot of stand up comedians and a lot of them have said at the beginning of their career when they were just starting out, what they struggled with was was being honest and being open. And so it was interesting for me to listen to you because it sounds like you had the opposite problem where you were being so honest and so open. And that's what at least from what I interpreted you saying, that's what caused your struggle. So to be that honest and that open at the beginning did you have to, like, how did you adjust? Did you become less honest? Did you start telling less details about your personal life or just different details? How did you adjust to that? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, good question. Uh, and I'm starting to like, that's especially right now. I've, I've just, I'm writing new chunks that are kind of addressing that. But like I said, I've had a lot of queer experiences and these, these are things that I've, um, uh, that I was trying to talk about at the time. And I just, stuff like group sex or letting a, a guy, of course you can cuss on this, right? Oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> About letting this old, when I quit being a pastor, I let this old guy suck my dick in, in a porn shop. And I mean, I try to talk about this stuff very early on. And now those, a lot of the stuff are bits that I have, but, um, I almost at the beginning or, or how I, I got to a, a thing was, um, I would kind of like trick people into thinking like, Oh, like, oh, he might like, and I'm, you know, I'm a big Mexican guy too. So they don't expect a lot of the stuff to be coming out of my mouth. <laughs> so I've kind of, I, so I kind of like tricked them in a way to think like, oh, maybe he's 
that's funny how he's kind of being a little gay or stuff, but they don't, I can't tell if he's that way or not, but that's kind of the joke is that, Oh, this big Mexican guy is kind of talking that way. But I, I figured out after a while and like in the past year, I was like, well, I kind of don't, I kind of don't want to, I figured out that I was like trying to trick or like make a big group of mostly white people, mostly straight white people, like be okay with how I am. Mm. And I, I figured out to write jokes in that way where they would accept me and like me for that. And, uh, and I've done very well that way. And I have a whole bunch of jokes about that kind of thing. But then I got to the point where I was like, you know, I don't, I don't really, I like how I am and how I am is pretty cool. So I'm not going to kind of skirt the issue anymore. So the jokes I'm writing now are kind of like, this is what I'm into. Like, you know, this is what I am. This is what I'm into. If you're not into this, you're probably a fucking square. <laughs> and, uh, it, I, but, but I mean, I've still, I figured, yeah, I have to do it in a lovable enough way so that they, they know that I don't hate them or anything, but it, it's just coming from a, a, a completely different place. But yeah, I used to have to, um, you just kind of have to, you know, comedy is tricking people a lot, but I didn't like the way I was tricking them. But yeah, that's what I learned to do was to trick them thinking that I was regular. So you would do, if I had a 20 minute set or a 15 minute set, the first 10 minutes would be regular enough jokes. And then the last five would be really strange so that they would be like, Oh, I guess he's okay. You know, I, I think he's okay. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, my style's evolving. So, mm-hmm. Now, a little bit earlier, you talked about, uh, use the phrase, making it. And uh, I just wanted to know, like, in your opinion, when you say make it or making it, how do you define that? What is making it to you? Um, I, I think it was, you know, I, it's pretty low for me, probably still. I don't mind talking about money stuff. Um, but I do, on, on the two nights a week that I bartend, I, um, I make, like, probably about $38,000 a year just bartending the two nights a week um, for me to be making it as a stand-up comic in Los Angeles. If I could be making $70,000 a year to me, that would be, and, and when I started, it was 50, but now that I'm older, I'm like, okay, I really need health insurance and a bunch of things I didn't know. <laughs> but to me, it's $70,000 a year. That to me, I, I don't care how much I'm working, but that to me would be making it. And that's changed. I mean, and it's changed in the past year or two, because to me, it all used to be about art. Um, and I always told myself by year seven, I would love to be able to do an hour and have an hour that I'm proud of and, um, and to be a headliner, someone who could do that and people were excited to see. And now I don't even care about that. To me, that's such a part of who I am as an artist that that stuff is always going to come. I'm glad I worked hard. And Los Angeles especially, you have to just keep your head down because so many people are getting stuff all the time. And you have to be aware that that's not why I'm doing it, that uh, I really am in this for the comedy. So it, if it takes me eight years or 10 years to become the person that I want to be, to have my voice be true, then that's how long it's going to be. But it's not about getting shit. But now that I'm at the eight year mark and I can headline and I do have jokes that I'm very proud of, I'm like, okay, how the fuck am I going to make this a living? How am I going to, how am I going to do this? so that I could um, have health insurance and maybe possibly if I want to have one child in uh, one of the most expensive cities in the world, that I could have one child. So for me, it's gone from artistic to um, real practical and, and figure out how I could do this and utilize my time best. 
Mm. You 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 bring up a good point about Los Angeles. It's such a competitive market. Do you see from your experiences? Do you see that comedians help each other to and they lift each other up, or is it very much like competitive, very cutthroat? What have you experienced? Um, I think I think certain people help each other. Um, it is of course very competitive, uh, but I'm also at the level where people aren't in the position; they're just starting to get in the position to be able to help each other. I mean, these first 10 or 12 years, you've just got to be scrambling to make sure that your own things happen and come to pass. And then, um, and then you could help people. Um, there's a show called corporate on comedy central. Um, it's the co-creators of Jake Wiseman and Matt Ingebrigtsen. And those guys, uh, all came up. Uh, they're a couple of years ahead of me, but I, I would say we all kind of are about the same class. And they, they just got their second season renewed. I think they just uh, finished filming it. But they, on their first season, and then I, they put me on the second season. And small bit parts and stuff. They've put a lot of Los Angeles comics on these shows to get us Comedy Central credits and to get us, uh, you know, some thousands of bucks or hundreds of dollars or whatever. Even if it's small parts, they could have just farmed them out to actors. But they've tried to remember who they like and who they're friends just to help us. But, um yeah, those for the first 10, 12, 15 years, it's really hard to to do anything but to to if you have to make your own dreams come true before you can help anybody else. Mm. And uh, that's what I've found it to be. I, I I know now that there's more women in comedian uh, or in comedy in the past uh, three or four years than when I started completely overall. And I've noticed that they seem to be more positive towards each other and more uplifting towards each other. And I don't know if that's if women are just generally better than us or something <laughs> like that. But I, I was just thinking about that, that they seem to be a little more positive on, on or on, online and that kind of stuff. Hmm. When you when you first started, so you're brand new on the comedy scene. Did you have people who would kind of I want to say mentor you, but kind of just give you advice like, hey, this worked and this didn't when you were just brand new? Um, nothing like that. Uh, but, um, Scott Lores, I've mentioned him a couple of times now, him and I had a podcast. I, I started a podcast called respect the danger of knives that I was actually doing maybe a year before I started doing standup. Hmm. I was just interviewing my friends and asking them about their life and asking them about the music they like. And I play a few songs from the stuff they asked. And then I started doing standup. So then I started interviewing other standups and, um, we, uh, I remember one time, Jake Wiseman, I interviewed him pretty early on, and he told us, oh, you can go to two or three open mics a night. And that, I mean, we just didn't know that's something you could do. Mm. Um, when you start, you didn't understand how open mics work. Um, but, but we thought you could go to one or two a week. But uh, after he told us that, then that's what we started doing. So Scott would do 15 a week. I would do 10 a week. And, and just tips like that, real practical, but one of the things I really love about stand-up comedy is you, you, you're told pretty early on and you figure this out is you can't really tell anybody else how to do it <coughs> because all you're telling them how to do is make comedy like you. And, um, that's, I mean, nobody, we don't need another one of us. Mm. So each person who, who learns how to do comedy, they have to figure out what works for them, uh, because different things work for different people. So, if, you, if there's a stand-up going around giving people all this uh, advice, I mean, I, I really would take it to, to heart. It's kind of a shitty way, and it's, it's it just doesn't make sense. Mm. 
Now performing ten to fifteen open mics a week, that to me, that's that you're working hard. When you're doing that, how often are you cranking out new material or are you using the same material for all those open mics? Well, uh it depends. Um I think that at each open mic you could maybe tell a joke two weeks in a row and then people people will just be tuned out. An open mic in Los Angeles uh, the Chatterbox open mic's really good. We get real people that come, and that's every Thursday at 8 o'clock in Covina. But for the most part, it's just other comics. So they'll let you do the same joke maybe twice, whatever changes you have, twice in a row, two weeks in a row. But then you have to move on to another joke. But that's why you, you do uh, a bunch of open mics, too, is that you, you know, if, you're, if you only have three, two mics you go to, then you can only tell that joke four times and it's even worse if the same comics are the mics but if you're going to eight or nine or ten or twelve open mics then you get 24 opportunities to hone that joke and to figure it out mm-hmm. so i mean we're always trying to, to write the, the older i get and the, the longer i've been doing stand-up you don't feel that the same pressure as as i used to because um we're kind of accepted in that community but at, at the beginning it was like such a proving ground so you you just didn't want to be thought of as a loser Hmm. or someone who was unfunny so you i mean those first couple years you're just grinding it out trying to figure out what your voice is and and if you're funny and if you're good enough but like i said the older i get is i do love chasing jokes and i'm chasing jokes down right now but it doesn't have that same hunger and that same like dude these people might stop might not talk to me if i'm not funny next week Mm, I see. I see what you're saying. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the Chatterbox because you've brought it up a lot during the interview. And I know, uh, like I told you, I'm in Atlanta and um, a, a lot of people who are listening might not be from California. So tell me a little bit, what is the Chatterbox and how to get started and how did it get to this point now where it's such a staple in the comedy scene? Uh, Chatterbox is a bar I work at. Uh, my, my older brother's best friend, Ralph, uh, he's like five years older than me. I've known him since I was little. He bought this bar in Covina, which is down the street from West Covina. And, uh, this is when I was working at TGI Fridays, but all the people at all the local restaurants at the Chili's at the BJ's at all the chain things, we all knew each other. So he asked me to get, you know, three or four or five of the best bartenders in the city and come work at the Chatterbox. So that's what we did. And, the whole time, too, he had in mind, because we had talked. To, I, I hadn't even been doing stand-up yet, but he's like, we'll get a little stage here for when you start comedy, and then we could do that. Uh, when I eventually started doing comedy, we started a Chatterbox Comedy Night. Uh, it was monthly the first year, twice a month the second year, and we've been doing it weekly for six, the past six years, so over eight years now. But um, we've just... Covina's far enough away. It's about 24 miles away from L.A. proper so that you get a a lot of real people, a lot of uh, blue-collar people, um, just regular people that like to laugh. Los Angeles is kind of a hellhole (laughs) for audiences because everybody's here to make their own shit full of narcissists and not a lot of people that would just go out to get drunk and watch comedy. Um, But from the start, we were pretty good at at figuring out who the great comics were and, and bringing out just really good comics. So... Uh, every week we do it. It's usually jam packed. There's something about the room that's real special. Uh, it's got a nice low ceiling, and uh, the people who go there, a lot of them have been going to, to the show every week for five or six years, and they're just very savvy. Uh, they like um, 
they like people just being themselves, but you could be real raunchy and you could be nerdy as long as you're being yourself. But it just feels, it's one of the few stages in Los Angeles where it feels like um, magic could happen there every week. You'll, you won't hear about a lot. Los Angeles just doesn't have that many good shows, maybe four or five good shows, but it's one of the few uh, rooms in Los Angeles where you can really murder there and get it cooking and it, it feel like, oh shit, this is why I do stand-up comedy. That's really cool. I, I like I like your description of uh, it sounds like it's a very real place. Like it's just it's a bunch of people who get together who just really love comedy. It's not tourists there uh, visiting because uh, whatever. It's just a very real place where everyone's appreciating comedy. That's what it sounds like to yeah, me. Yeah, and yeah, and it's not. I mean, they're not. They. I mean, they wouldn't call themselves comedy nerds, but hmm. they because they're they have they have jobs and they they like to get drunk on Sundays. Mm-hmm. It's you know the melt the meltdown was full of comedy nerds that had watched Mister Show and all that kind of shit. But yeah, they but they do love good comedy, and we brought out. We I mean, I'm very picky about who we put on that show, and uh, you know, there's people who are are famous who have come out to do that show and they eat shit because whatever the thing they have that, that allows them to sell products in Hollywood isn't the same thing as real stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people know like it's become a badge of honor that to do that show or to headlight show, headline that show or to kill at the chatterbox, it means like, oh, I'm a real stand-up comedy. Mm. Stand-up comedy is different than like, you know, selling the shit or being on movies or TV. It's, it's like I can walk in to a room full of strangers and blow them that blow them away Mm, that's very cool and are you are you uh i i'm assuming you perform but are you the booker for the show or do you have any administrative role in the show at all yeah i'm i'm the primary booker scott lurs is uh, my partner he's the only other guy who has access to the calendar and can book whoever he wants Mm -hmm. but he has he has a feel for what we want and where we like to place people um but we also have a few other we always host in pairs uh, and so Scott and I host together and then a woman named Ellie McElvain, um, she hosts with both me and Scott too. And then we have another couple of pairs named, uh, Julia Loken and Lisa Chanel. They have a really huge popular podcast called what's your sign. Um, and then uh, Kevin Macias and Josh Michaels are another pair of that host, but, uh, just Scott and I are the only ones who really book it. Gotcha. What's the difference between hosting and, uh, a stand-up show and performing in a stand-up show. Um, hosting, you kind of got to be prepared to. You, when you're hosting, it's uh, you, you're con- it's not about your art; it's about making sure the show is the best show possible. And so that means um, maybe not doing um, like your most risque or dirty jokes or anything. And, and I'm a very dirty comic, so this is coming from my heart. Uh, but not doing the stuff that'll necessarily kill up top. Although for us, I mean, our hosting teams are pretty good. We're all conversational and we do talk things through a lot, but, but, um, you know, we take a lot of chances up there too, but, but yeah, the difference is if I'm, if I'm going to do a set, it's going to be, uh, I don't have to worry about anyone else Mm. for me. A lot of times for us, cause it is a bar show. So we've trained, the audience they've been trained pretty well and they're pretty good it's quiet for the most part but a lot of times you just got to eat shit up front so (laughs) if if somebody just keeps talking i mean i've had this this happens i don't know six times a year where there's people that are just drunk and it's just i we have to start joking and then i have to say hey man i need you to quiet down 
And then we have to say sometimes, hey, you know what? We can't continue. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And all of this feels terrible for the comedy show. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. It, the, the way the audience feels is like, oh, God, this is awful. But as, as hosts, if you don't take that bullet up top, then the whole show, people are going to be dealing with this fucking drunk asshole throughout the whole thing. So my job is to ensure that the table is set for everybody else to have good sets so that everyone's paid attention, everyone's in an upbeat mood, and everybody understands um, the rules to stand-up comedy. Don't talk on your phone. If you want to have a conversation, feel free to go outside. Go to the bathrooms or over here, um, but uh, don't talk either because we can hear you in the hallway. Mm -hmm. And to, to prove, I think for us, is um hosting is really important is we try to set the bar pretty high about how funny everything's going to be uh just to, to command respect from these people who have no reason to respect us so that they'll be like all right these guys are funny if these guys are funny then we're going to trust that the people they bring up are mm -hmm. yeah i mean from what it sounds like to me is you guys when you host you're you're the power you are the authority in the room and so i love that you when when there's someone there that's taking that magic away that you were describing or taking away that comedy that funniness it's so great to hear that being the authority being the power you say okay well we are going to remove that to keep that magic alive to keep that comedy world alive because what we have is special and we are going to keep that specialness and not let anybody ruin it. Yeah, you, I mean, yeah, I haven't thought about it like that, but that's, I mean, I, I've got, almost gotten a fight. Thank God I haven't had to fight anyone yet, <laughs> yeah. but we, I've, take, I've taken people outside in to calm them, like, let's get you out of the room, and I'd be like, let's take this outside. And then we walk out there, and I just shut the door, and I go, <laughs> nah, man, I'm not dealing with you. But I, ha I mean, I've almost gotten a fight. But yeah, I guess it is. I, I do could. I do consider what we do, you know, it, it does get magical in there. And so, you know, for someone to come and stomp on it just because they, I don't know, because they don't understand what's going on, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, I'd rather, and I think also I think it would be hilarious to die over a comedy show, yeah. you know, uh, over a comedy bar show, to get stabbed or something like the end of Stand By Me, that would be great. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I mean, it would be a very sad Facebook post to talk about that as former talking late night guest Steve Hernandez was tragically stabbed <laughs> over, over a stand-up show. Though. <laughs> that, it, exactly. What a, le what a legend! Right? <laughs> yeah, the legend Steve Hernandez was stabbed <laughs> over a stand-up show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's defining. That is life-defining right there. <laughs> now, it, besides stand-up and what you do at the Chatterbox, are you involved in any other type of comedy? So, like podcasts or or sketch or improv. Oh, yeah, I really, I really love podcasting, and uh, the two I have right now are pretty successful. Uh, I do Who's Your God with Amy Miller, a past guest. Uh, and uh, that's a religion podcast and an ethics podcast. We kind of talk about people's spiritual upbringings, and then we close it out with saying, if you were to start a church or a religion, um, what are three tenets of that? What would they be? And they could be funny or they could be serious. We just ask people, you know, what, what helps you feel balanced or happy or whatever. And, uh, yeah, we're able to get pretty deep with comics um, in ways that I don't think normal people do. And then uh, my, my movie podcast, Views from the Vista, there's a, a classic movie theater right here in Los Feliz um, called The Vista. It's a big, maybe 500-seater, and it's beautiful. It's from the 30s. And uh, my friend Zed Cutzinger, he's a writer for UCB, and Honor Nezzo, she's uh, his girlfriend, but she's also an amazing musician in the band Beginners. Um, we just go see whatever they're playing and we review it. But, um, yeah, that, mo that movie podcast is doing great, and there's not much to it, but we're all great, and we have a great time doing it, so... 
That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. And I only have one more question for you. This is a, a question that I ask uh, all of my guests. So um, this is this is a defining moment in your comedy career. I feel is this question right here. <laughs> so so I wish you luck. Uh, but the question is, uh, if you were to give one piece of advice to someone who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give? Um. I've been saying this a lot lately, but I don't, I don't know if it's good advice or not, but I think it's good advice. Um, if you want to do stand-up comedy, just go do it. But uh, Alan Strickland Williams is a very funny comic. He's done Conan a couple times. But when I started, I remember he told me at uh, open mics, there's, um, there's sign-up sheets. And a lot of times nobody signs up for the first spot because they're afraid to go first. But when I first started, I remember Alan Strickland Williams told me, always pick that one spot. So like 15, 20 people will sign up before you and you're like, ah, goddamn, I'm going to have to be there for an hour and a half or two hours. And then you'll get up there and that one spot's still open because everyone's so afraid. But Alan said, sign up on the fucking one spot every time you get because stand-up comedy, all it is is controlling the energy of a room. And if you can do that at the beginning, make yourself, force yourself to be able to control the energy of a room right away, then you're going to become a great comic. And um, I've always taken that advice, even at the Chatterbox open mic on Thursday. I always tell them, pick the one spot. Don't be afraid. Learn how to control the energy of the room. Man, I, I, I have to tell you, that is one of the most original pieces of advice I have ever heard. I love that. That is fantastic. <laughs> I, I approve. Well, you, it's from Alan Strickland-Williams. <laughs> <laughs> you pass. I approve. Good work. <laughs> good, good. So now, Steve, if people want to learn either uh, about e- either of your podcasts or they want to check out the Chatterbox or see you perform, what are some ways that they can do that? Uh, just follow me on Twitter at Big Hearn or uh, Hernia on Instagram. But I post about all those things both of those places. Um, and I'm always on Twitter making jokes and my Instagram's hot. I've got a hot girlfriend and I'm always <laughs> putting real risque stories up on it. So yeah, you're going to want to follow me on Instagram, but, um, yeah, just follow me on one of those things. And then uh, I advertise everything on both of those things. All right. Awesome. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. I had a blast talking with you. Thanks so much, Max. It was a pleasure. And to anybody listening, remember, you can visit us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Talking Late Night, and you can find us on iTunes where you can rate and leave us a review. So thanks again to Steve for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 